coming to the ending of another day, the uh, night drawing in, the sounds of the birds outside, and feeling uh, the effects of sitting another day in meditation together. And uh, for me, contemplating and being with some of the conversations that I've had, or the sharing of experiences with the different small groups, and in the discussions, and with the managers, in the manager's room. A process, process of contemplating the Dharma together to some things that are clear for us and uh, we understand and other things that are yet unclear or a sense of confusion while we're working with that which isn't yet integrated for us and that, that can be uncomfortable it's not perhaps as clear as we'd like it to be sometimes. We don't know. And for me, that's a very appropriate experience to have, or feeling to have, in response to a journey of discovery. I don't know, ultimately, really. There's lots and lots of things that I don't know. But I trust the process. And there are certain aspects of the meditative approach and dharma teachings that I do trust. Some of them feel quite integrated, quite embodied for me, and others don't. Others I'm still grappling with, I'm at the edges of. I certainly don't feel I've got it all under my belt and clear, crystal clear. And I suppose over the years I've my relationship to that which is unclear has changed. At first I feel quite uh, threatened by not having it totally clear, especially if one is in this kind of a role. You should know. (laughs) I remember when I was was actually asked to do teaching, uh, quite soon after I entered the monastery, which in some ways is a little unfair because I was, not that I, f- I feel that ready now, but I certainly didn't feel that ready then when I was uh, 23. And uh, still grappling with a lot myself. I was sent off to, uh, well, the monks didn't want to go because it was a ladies' yoga group and they were all in leotards. <laughs> <laughs> and they thought it would be too challenging for them, so they sent me. And I was so stressed out by it that I got a migraine the first day teaching these. And in the end, the ladies had to stretch me and do yoga postures and calm me down. I was, I was in a terrible state about it all. And then I was sent off onto another workshop as the anxiety 
would get so strong, having having to say something about the Dharma. And uh, someone asked me a question, and I said, "Well, um, well, let's have a cup of tea, and then I'll um, I'll come back to that in a minute." So we stopped for a cup of tea, and I rushed over to the library. <laughs> looking up this Pali word that this person has asked me about. Oh, what does that mean? What does it mean? <laughs> and I suppose over the years I sort of feel a bit more a bit more relaxed about it and allowing myself not to have to know, allowing myself to enter into process and experience edges that aren't yet clear. And uh, to see gr- uh, confusion as a as a symptom of, if that's the right word, as a, but as an expression of new learning yet to happen, new growth yet to happen, or fear. Sometimes when we reach that edge, we're uncertain. We can feel fear, rather being intimidated by that energy. Just to recognise, yes, this is this is how it is. That I do trust. Actually, I do trust that. This is how it is. This is naming it. This is this is this energy. I don't have to, when there's doubt, find an answer, or when there's confusion, unravel it, or when there's fear, repress it and try and feel confident. But, but trusting that these energies are okay to receive, to be in relationship with, to know that they're important, that they're that they're authentic, and for a process of integration true integration, one has to receive those energies that bring up uncertainty, where there is uncertainty. To receive the confusion, to receive the doubt. And to know, yes, this is something I'm still contemplating, I'm still with. And I think in terms of the big picture of the Buddha Dharma coming into Western culture, modern life, and these ancient teachings and meditative methods that we haven't had really accessible to us. We haven't had centuries of teachings about shunyata or emptiness. We don't have a cultural holding for that, actually. It's, 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 we might have quantum physicists now understanding the nature of, of the ultimate, um, ultimately the insubstantial nature of this universe, it's all just energy. But that certainly hasn't been a, an ancient, or it might have been in ancient times, but say, our more recent conditioning it hasn't really held that kind of understanding or that wisdom. So, when these teachings come into our own personal conditioning, our own personal process, when they come into our modern culture, our modern way of life, there's bound to be. It's, it's, it's not going to necessarily sit easily. It's not necessarily going to become clear straight away. How do tradition, these Eastern traditions, relate to what should we keep, what should we throw out, should we throw it all out? How does Christianity fit in? How does Judaism fit in? Does it fit in? How does the New Age fit in? How does healing the self fit in with transcending the self? Is there a self or isn't there a self? <laughs> Who's asking that anyway? <laughs> you know, it's, it's, these these are sort of like what we're all in process with. 
And I think to be authentically engaged with that, there there is going to, you know, to actually rush to conclusions from not being comfortable with allowing confusion or fear or doubt to be there, to try and grasp, can turn into a, a sort of fundamentalist approach. Well, I know the answer. I've got my view. I've got my approach. So that can leave one in quite a, a fragile or a, a, a easily threatened position. Someone comes up with an opposite view. Now, I don't see it like that. I don't see that we, that we should heal the self. No, that's not. That's, that's wishy-washy. We should just be going for uh, total ego dismantlement. <laughs> Nothing left. Just dissolve the whole thing. It's all just bullshit, really. All this sloshing around and emotions. But to be able to hold tension between, in a way it's holding a tension of not having to take a position in, in anything, really, until it becomes an authentic understanding for ourselves. For me, that is the process of integration and learning, to hold the tension of not really having to know or having to have an answer being able to hold the, the confusion that's not yet clear, being able to hold a teaching that is not yet ours, it's not embodied yet, in a way, having, what is the relationship to that teaching? Is it something we have to immediately to reject? Is it something that we take on board as a new view that we have? Or can we just hold it, allow it to be there? Maybe it's uncomfortable, and that's probably quite good. There is something uncomfortable, sometimes profoundly uncomfortable about the, the Dharma. It doesn't allow us to to find uh, comfort sometimes. It can be quite uh, challenging. Actually, if you really consider profoundly the Buddha's teaching, it is, prof- it is very challenging. You consider where it, where it, uh, what it uh, points to. I think if I... I'm honest, I, I, when I first started this journey, uh, well, I don't even know when one first starts the journey, <laughs> but my sense of starting in this life, anyhow, I, I, I thought it was going to be much easier than it has been. <laughs> and probably if I had the choice, I wouldn't have started at all, actually. <laughs> But it's hard once you once you get a little bit of knowledge, a little bit of understanding. It's hard to to erase that. As one teacher says, when you wake up a little bit, it's hard to go back to sleep. You can doze, but you you, <laughs> you can't really. And maybe this is, in a way, this is perhaps also how does what does Buddhism say to our culture, to our tendencies? Well, certainly uh, our culture is a very impatient culture, I think. We're used to using these amazing um, technologies that we've developed for expediency, for fulfilling our desires, for getting where we want to be, for getting us away from what we don't like to be with. Uh, so there's a, there's, in, there's a certain impatience with that which is obstructive or difficult or unclear for us. And, and in one way, Buddhism is, is, has this incredibly expansive view on time. 
which is a, which is another challenging aspect. If I take the path from the sense of me going somewhere, I want to get to what I might call liberation or freedom quickly. And I suppose that's what I first started with. I want to. I don't even know if it was very clear, but there was a sense of me wanting to to be released from these heavy burdens and feelings of suffering, pain, confusion. And I thought perhaps a few retreats should wrap it up. (laughs) 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 I think that's because my first experiences were very expansive. Partly helped through some of the substances available <laughs> in the 70s. Incredibly expansive experiences, sort of catapulted into to, um, states of being that I'd never experienced before. Really um, dissolving my diminished and uh, constricted self. I know myself to be. In, opened into these very expansive, um, brilliant, beautiful spaces of pure love and bliss. Everything was very clear. From that perspective, this lifetime is just a drop in the ocean, nothing, really. A little bit of karma to to burn through, a little bit of stuff to fizzle through. Nothing compared to the ocean of bliss. Yeah. And, uh, karma is really what we create through the, the the difficulty we have in just accepting the awesomeness of our own nature, moving to separation. A lot, you know, a lot of clarity, a lot of um, profound vision. But what I didn't understand in those early days, and in the early days of doing very um, rigorous meditation retreats to get back into those kinds of spaces. Lots of fasting, lots of, you know, just all the sort of uh, classical kind of um, um, sadhanas or practices, mainly from Asia, using them with this this, desire, really, to, to get into a almost like a disembodied state, transcendent state. But what I didn't understand is the, the power of the undigested karma that I that I that was my life. It wasn't so much about just trying to get out, but uh, really just working with what what is and the patience needed for that. So this, you know, over the years, I don't quite know. I think Ajahn Chah was very key, meeting Ajahn Chah and actually shifting uh, my understanding, which was uh, rather than trying to, to get somewhere or out of something, was really into a much more subtle uh, relationship to my experience, uh, one of, of right view or um, one of uh, more patience, one of realizing that uh, all all of us, the all of our experiences are that which we can learn from, that which we can contemplate, that which we can can uh, grow wisdom from, 
understanding from. So from that perspective, of, I mean, in a way, for me, getting enlightened is almost it's like not an issue anymore. I don't even think like that anymore, actually. I don't know when I stopped thinking like me getting enlightened, but it just seems a bit of a joke. <laughs> you know, who is that, anyway? Um, but it's, it's just like, you know, there's nothing else to do but to, to be with the breath, be with the moment, be with the body and to, to allow the journey to unfold. So there's a shift some happens somewhere from this, this ambition, um, driven off really by a lot of pain, into a more patient, accepting, um, allowing, spacious attitude, which is actually, for me, has been more peaceful. I think of the, the Buddha's analogy for how long we've been doing this. He said, if you, if you wanted to pile up all the bones of all the bodies that we've ever lived in, I mean, you, you can believe this or not, it's just one of the analogies. It gives you a sense of the expanse of time that um, the Buddha's talking about. If you want to pile up all those bones, you, know, you can make a huge mountain. Or if you want to gather all the tears that we've ever cried, you'd make an ocean. It just sort of gives you a little flicker of... <laughs> of perspective on it, on, on the journey. So in a way, a 10-day retreat is, you know, it's a, <laughs> a little snippet <laughs> in the whole picture. But an important snippet, it's an important pause, taking a breather, getting, taking stock. But once, you know, the, the journey started, it's a bit like, in a, in a way, leaving the palace. We've left the palace, really, in the, the, the archetypal journey of the Buddha. And there was this notion of leaving behind, uh, taking a step out of the, uh, of the conventional world in which he lived, taking a, a step out of perhaps some of the roles that were expected of him, taking a step away from that which is, was seen to be in some ways quite comfortable, quite a nice life. And why did he, why bother to step out the palace? You know, it's comfortable, it's not that challenging, it's warm, it's cosy, it's womb-like, it's, 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 you know, it's nice. <laughs> why step outside when there's, there's winds and marshes and, and forests to traverse and uncertainty and don't know where we're going quite? Why not stay with the, within, the, within the womb, within the palace, within that which is, which is comfortable? Well, there were certain things that uh, that actually awoke the Buddha. Certain experiences that uh, didn't allow him to really stay comfortable. And these these devadutas, these heavenly messengers, all these things that are messengers, things that come to us, different parts of our life, which are uncomfortable, they do disturb in a way. They disturb in a way that that makes us ponder more deeply, like death, impermanence and death. Even the palace changes, even the loved ones move on, even those that we've, like my granny this week, spent known her the whole of my life. a very profound part of my life and uh, in a way I 
I feel very, I owe her a lot because of her ability just to offer a very loving space in a family situation that was, that was fraught, that was difficult. But mm, death is a impermanent, yeah, is a passing, no longer the physical contact. The, the notion of granny is changing. Have to yeah, allow the space for what I knew my granny to be to change, to release that being from the form of how I knew her. Or another another Deodhuta that the, the Buddha met was the aging process. Yes, it is beautiful to be in the palace when everyone is everything is youthful and bright and beautiful. And that's what our, our society in a way tries to create a lot, using the amazing power we have to manipulate the the, the material realm, to create this sense of eternal beauty and health and happiness. And it's huge industries focused around that. A huge selling power, how to be more useful, beautiful, happy, healthy. But the day we're due to that which wakes up, that which we don't like to open to, aging and sickness, when the body isn't feeling well and it's not feeling healthy. So all these, these classical signs, or the, the 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 last one that the Buddha met, in that which caused him to walk out of the palace, the the sign of the seeker, someone peaceful. We see, we hear something, maybe a possibility beyond what we we normally know ourselves to be, that evokes perhaps something quite ancient within us. Yes, there, there is a there is a path, there is a way to live beyond the vanities of the world. And that's really what the Buddha said when he came across these devasutas, when he, these messengers, like they come to us at various points in our life, when these messengers come, when they came to the Buddha, he said, all the vanity of youth left him. I too am subject to aging. I too am subject to death. I too am subject to ill health. And I too can walk the way of awakening, can be a seeker. So I suppose in the, in the, the large view of things, uh, when one gets a, a larger perspective on the journey, uh, we can uh, get to a point when we can take the chart off the wall and stop ticking where we're going and just allow ourselves to be with the process, to be with our struggles, to be with our fears, to be with our uncertainties, with what's not yet clear. And quite a lot of what happens in a meditation retreat is allowing ourselves the space to receive what is yet unclear for us, which is yet undigested, or just the karmic momentum or the habit tendencies of the mind and body and the emotional and psychological realm, those things sometimes, those feelings, those thoughts, those memories that we haven't really given a lot of attention to, that we avoid, that are uncomfortable for us, what we might call 
the sankhara, the old patternings that appear. This is so this perspective on this, this teaching on patience is, is really important to keep remembering. If you can keep a perspective on, on the journey. I'm thinking, well, God, I'm four days, six days left, I've got to go back to work, I've at least got to get some clarity before I go, I've got to get some moment of enlightenment and some little drop of compassion for this mess of my family situation and some kind of resolve about my... If we can just relax uh, a little bit away from that kind of drivenness sometimes in our lives to get the answers before the answers are ready to, to be born for us. Allow ourselves to enter the process. And allow ourselves the space just to receive what is yet undigested, unclear. This notion of, of receiving past karmic force. And a lot of the meditative process is about that. Yes, we can create calm, we can develop the samatha, we can, we can cultivate, we haven't really been intending to that, but uh, we will at some point, we can cultivate compassion through using the mind in a skillful way, thought in a skillful way, from uh, generating uh, warm feeling in the heart area. We can cultivate wisdom by contemplating the characteristics of impermanence, the lack of the changing, shifting nature of our moment-to-moment experience, the lack of solidity in what appears to be, appears to be solid and permanent. We can contemplate uh, dukkha in a way that, that doesn't perpetuate blind suffering, but in a way that, that receives and allows. But quite a lot of the process is also just allowing space for us to receive that which has already been set in motion, the results of our own karma. Or maybe it's not our own karma. Maybe it's the karma partly, I mean, it's hard to discern. At a certain point, it's hard to know what is our karma, what's our family's karma, what's our community's karma, what's the global karma. That's, that's hard to put out all the threads. The Buddha said it's, it's, it's impossible, really, to see the causation of all, the all effects that we experience. Unless you're a Buddha, I mean, you know, if you're fairly enlightened, we might be able to get some sense of where this comes from. Maybe uh, feelings I might have of lack of self-worth, something I've worked with a lot in my life. Yes, I can, I can trace that to some of my childhood experiences through therapeutic work. I can see where some of that originated from feelings of being abandoned or unloved or feelings of not being allowed to expand into my creativity, into my uh, joy, as it might be threatening to my parents or whatever. I can see how a diminished sense of self was created through the conditioning of my family. Yes, I can see that. But if I look even deeper, beyond how that, how that sense of self collapsed. For some people it might be inflated. Mm-hmm. For me, in, in my conditioning, it was a, it was a, 
very weak and and um, collapsed sense of self, diminished and worthless. But if I look deeper, I can see, well, actually, that conditioning came. Where did that come from? It came through my parents, but where did they get theirs from? <laughs> where did I mean? It doesn't just it didn't just arise without some cause. Now, if I look at their lives, how did they live? What did they receive in their childhood? And then if I look at my grandparents' life, what did they receive? As far back as I can go, which isn't that far. And if I look at the karma of women, being born in a woman's body, or if one's a man, certain tendencies that one, one gets conditioned with, from schooling, from in so many different places, how to separate the threads. That's hard to do. And there are some you know, ways that one can approach it through therapy, through past life recalls, through whatever. And maybe that's accurate or maybe it's not. That's hard to know sometimes. But what we can know working meditatively is what has appeared here and now. This is the sankara, this is the formation that has appeared. Feelings of of anxiety or feelings of fear, feelings of whatever that come up, mind patterns of guilt or of whatever appears. So this sense of patience, some of these, even if there's uh, a lot of clarity, a lot of awareness, there's still even the great disciples of the Buddha. The Buddha himself received some of the uh, karmic results of previous actions. I like to, I've been uh, reading the, the stories of some of the early disciples and uh, reading one that particularly strikes me is the Mahamogalana, who was uh, the right-hand man of the Buddha, or the left-hand man, I don't know. There was a right-hand man and a left-hand man, Sariputta <laughs> Mogalana. Sariputta was uh, foremost in wisdom, incredible ability to to enunciate the Dharma, and profound insight. And Mahamogalana was known for being foremost in psychic powers. Uh, had what they called the divine ear and knowledge, could read minds, could disappear and reappear um, in different places. You know all the you might feel very sort of suspicious of that, but in the in the <laughs> in the, um, in, the uh, in, in certain it doesn't happen for everyone, but in certain stages of awakening, enlightenment, there are sometimes uh, for some some beings, according to karmic propensity, the development of these psychic awarenesses or powers it wasn't a focal point of the Buddha's teaching. It was more seen as a side product. Well not to get too kind of obsessed around or and it's in fact it you know can even be quite misleading like Devadatta Buddha's cousin had incredible psychic powers was a very powerful yogi renunciate a vegetarian even and uh, <laughs> and unfortunately he was actually quite deluded tried to, to murder the Buddha and take over the order had a problem with the Asura realm but, uh, so it's not always a sign 
of great spirituality. So the Buddhists you know, said there should be some care. But however, Moggallana was, was actually a very enlightened being, but also had these, this ability to understand the laws of matter, laws of mind, and so had all these sort of fancy powers. But he, and he was pretty, pretty okay. You know, he'd done his work, made a disciple, lots of, dis- and had his own disciples, great teacher. But he had a bit of unripened karma that he was yet to fruit. Actually, it was a bit of a heavy piece of karma. And it's said that in a previous life, a long, long time ago, he had taken the life of his parents, which is, you know, is one of those things that is, there's about five things that you can do that, that have, that are hard to dissolve. That they have a, a certain impact. And that's one of them. Taking the life of your mother and father. And, um, that came about time to fruit. And he had to experience the fruition of that karma. He was actually murdered. That's how he died. He was an enlightened disciple and yet he was murdered. And he tried to, um, he knew that was on the cars. At a certain point he saw that coming. And he tried to escape, not because he actually had a fear for himself, but he had a fear for the bad karma that the others would be, the perpetuators would be creating. And so he, he disappeared when they came. What, what the story was that uh, some of the other, um, at the time of the Buddha, there were a lot of different teachers around, um, sort of, Propagating different philosophies and teachings, and there was a lot of competition. Really, it was a bit. Sometimes I think it was. Sometimes I think it was a bit like the Totnes area. <laughs> different, different teachers would come in and proclaim their enlightenment, and everyone would troop off to see them and get confused or get inspired or whatever. And then they troop off to the Buddha and question him, and he would kind of set them straight. And they troop off. Anyway, Mahamogalana had had actually attracted a lot of disciples to him because he was, he was pretty amazing and there was a lot of jealousy. And so this other sect who were quite upset by him conspired to have him murdered and that's how it came about. They hired some people, some brigands to do that. But Mogalana tried to uh, escape and disappear and he managed it about six times. This is a story. I mean, you can do whatever you like with it. It's a story. Uh, but he tried to disappear using his psychic. He did disappear about six times. And they said so they came to his dwelling and they couldn't find him. And then on the seventh time, I can't remember the exact detail, but somehow the power of the previous karmic force ripened and he, and he couldn't put it off. And so he got beaten to a pulp. And the end of the story, whether that's a romantic addition or not, I don't know, but he, they say he dragged himself to the Buddha. And the Buddha said, bear it, Moggallana, bear it. (laughs) It's just a little bit of old karma clear up. Not a big deal if you're enlightened. (laughs) And then that was, uh, that was the story of Moggallana. So even here, uh, hopefully none of us will get beaten to a pulp in this 10 day retreat, but, but we are receiving, we are allowing space, we are digesting some of the momentum from wherever it comes. Yes, at one level, therapeutic work. For me, that was quite important. At one level, it was important to be able to place to the degree that I could where stuff came from. Yeah, this is, I can see this is a, something I've taken on board that maybe isn't really mine on one level. My parents or 
my schooling or from my teachers or whatever. I've taken on these notions or these views or whatever. It's important for me to get that sense of my of boundary. Yes, it has been important on one level to look at the notion of healing self, of, in a way, freeing the sense of self initially from distorted perception through um, erroneous conditioning, through uh, uh, releasing and letting go of some of held pains and grief. But at a certain point, you know, it doesn't really matter where it comes from. In the Bodhisattva way, it doesn't wherever it comes from, it's appeared. This is, and so this teaching of the, the first noble truth, wherever the formations appear from, come from, to meet, to meet dukkha, to allow ourselves to receive, to concentrate that which has arisen. And this teaching on anatta, non-self, very profound. If it's misapplied, if it's used to just try and dismiss, oh, non-self means non-attachment, means not feeling anything. <laughs> there can be that confusion. We can translate non-self, confuse it, with our desire just not to, to be in contact with the world through fear of feeling pain. And we call it non-self. But yet, yeah, anatta, we mean, in a way, if it's used, not as a, as a view, there is no self, end of story, but I don't see it like, I see it, a, I don't see it like that, I see it as a teaching, I see, but all the Buddha's teachings, they're all provisional, they're just teachings to bring us into a state of balance. They're not ultimates, they're wrath. Non-self is a teaching, we, we, doesn't mean to say there's, there is a sense of self, yes. It's not the ultimate, most profound, level of our being, perhaps, where there's a disillusion of our dissolving of our sense of separation. Or another way of looking at where the individual sense of self can expand to include the whole. But at a certain level, there is a sense of, yes, on a relative level, there's a sense of me, there's a sense of you. And that's, that, that has a reality to it, a certain level of reality. It's important to, to understand, to get in perspective. But this anatta is a, if, if used, held, picked up carefully, not like a club to just knock out the things we don't want to deal with, but if it's used carefully, in perspective, then it allows us actually to embrace that which is yet undigested in the sphere of karmic result. So we're feeling uh, pain or turmoil many of us feel on a retreat. It comes. Perhaps we don't know where it comes from. And perhaps it doesn't really matter on one level. We can we can meet it, this contemplation of meeting dukkha. This is how it is. There is fear, there is pain, there is anger. In meeting it, we allow ourselves to feel it. So it's a paradox. In a way, when we see non-self, it actually... Rather than a pushing away, it's not self, push it away. It actually, if used carefully, non-self can give us a perspective, can give us a space, a huge space within which, yes, let me just receive this being, or as our teacher used to say, this orphan of consciousness that hasn't yet been received, hasn't been parented, parented through our own awareness. 
I first uh, just um, yeah, I won't go on much longer. But <laughs> one of my first ins- ways of working with this uh, teaching was very helpful for me because working, living in the monastery in the early years as a nun was a very painful experience for me, uh, partly because I've been very idealistic and very naive, thinking that spiritual, spirituality meant just about being filled with golden light. I had this image, actually, that I was going to sit in this cutie, in this kind of blissful state for the rest of my life. I mean, that's how naive I was. <laughs> I just ordain, shave off my hair, put on a robe, leave the world behind, and sit on this mountaintop. Goodbye, sweet world. In, in bliss only to find myself living in the community of people I didn't like, <laughs> sharing a room with a, with a woman that, that consistently came in at midnight when we had to get up at four in the morning. She had all these other things she wanted to do, and then she would fall asleep like that and snore. <laughs> and I would spend the next few hours feeling totally murderous. And I'd drag myself up at four and, and then compete to get to the best spot in the shrine room. And then defend my spot, and then I know just like one hellish state after another. And so there, there was, there was, (laughs) there was despair, there was violence, there was murder. And I probably could have done with a therapist at that point, but there weren't many around. But uh, I did used to reflect on the Dharma. Fortunately, just about managed to. And there was this encouragement uh, to work with this notion of non-self. Now, my, my early understanding of that was like just denying, denying these feelings, you know, and finding it very difficult when you feel that you're a spiritual person. It's very difficult to acknowledge and to really open. And, and that, that is the place sometimes of owning and allowing. Yes, this energy is here. And it came to a pit, Ajahn Chah used to say something, he said, when you get to a corner and you can't go up and you can't go down, you can't move sideways, you can't get out anymore, he said, that's when practice really begins. That's when a shift can really happen sometimes, when, you know, we, we sort of squirm around in dukkha. <laughs> and he says, sometimes when life really puts you in the corner, it's a blessing. You know, we don't, everything in this field is not a blessing because everything in us wants to avoid and the, and the monastery is very good at doing that. It will kind of, in, eventually, it will sort of get you in a... And, and that's what happened to me after several months. Uh, I don't know how long. And then, you know, one day, um, one of the focal points, the discontent of the community, the nuns' community, was who was going to make the fire. <laughs> we had this one, because it was, it was cold, and, and we had this one... In winter time, this one ray burn that would heat the cottage. And if you let the ray burn out, then the whole thing would just sort of... And I felt like I'd really been doing my duty. And, and the, the other nun wasn't doing hers. And it was my turn to do it in the morning, and she was supposed to do it in the afternoon, and she didn't, and she let it out. And here I was, I was tired, I'd been cooking all morning, working my fingers to the bone, and I get back, ready for the snooze, because I'm exhausted because I've been... Getting, I've been getting to sleep late with this woman. I was snoring and getting up early and, you know, look at me, I'm so good. And, and the fire's out. And I felt, I mean, murder. This, this, is, this, is, 
But fortunately, in the monastery, we had these precepts, you know, she said, you, know, you can feel what you like, but there's, you can't act on it. <laughs> and I was in that corner, you know, I, I, I couldn't really, and I couldn't, I didn't have the energy to suppress it anymore. I couldn't really, or justify it, or blame it. It was so big, it became so big. And it wasn't, when I look back on it, if I, with a little, little bit of understanding that, that I've gained from the psychological world, you know, it wasn't just my murderous, <laughs> it felt like just mine, but it was like, there was a lot of murderous energy actually, undigested. So I was just like, with this energy, and, uh, and it, at that point a shift, a very important shift took place. It was very simple really, it was just acceptance, it was just an opening to, it was just like being kind of on the cross, just opening, okay. Let me just receive this energy. There was no more bargaining. There was no more trying to push it away. There was no more projection or blaming. It was just like... And it took me into a very profound place. And in, in, in a way, the acceptance initially of it as, as self, as me, as something to own, something to actually embrace, took me into a very profound place of transcendence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.